Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Critically acclaimed novelist and philosopher Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, the 2012 Frankie Visiting Fellow at the Whitney Humanities Center, presents a lecture entitled Romancing Spinoza, a consideration of Spinoza's impact on major literary figures of the 19th century. Baruch Spinoza, who was the 17th century's uber-rationalist, uh, he was the philosopher who, in the words of the philosopher Stuart Hampshire, made every claim for reason that's ever been made. And that's pure, a priori, hard-nosed, systematic, rigorous uh, reason, the kind that confines itself largely to inspecting logical entailments. Reason, proceeding by way of deductive proofs on the model of Euclidean geometry, starting with definitions and axioms and culminating with conclusions that bear the triumphant epigraph QED quad est demonstratum, uh, thus is it demonstrated, can tell us not only the nature of the world, the fundamental ontological structure of existence, the way things really are, which turn out to be, according to Spinoza, very different from the way they appear to sense and sensibility, but pure and rigorous a priori reason can also deduce th how things ought to be, the normative structure that ought to be imposed on our human existence if we are to live lives of full human flourishing. His magnum opus, after all, is called uh, The Ethics, written more geometrica in the geometrical mode. Reason, just seeing what things follow from what can deliver us into a kind of secularized form of salvation. The word salvation is used at the very end of the ethics. For those of you who haven't spent time within the logical matrix of Spinoza's ethics, which is itself meant to mirror some small portion of the logical matrix, which is reality, and which is meant to reorder the matrix of your mind, I just want to give you a sense of its style in order to highlight the surprising nature of the rest of what I'm going to spend my time with you telling you about, which is the rather remarkable influence that this uber-rationalist has had on literary artists, beginning at the time of the European Enlightenment, which started percolating about 100 years after his birth, um, and continuing, I'm not even going to say right up until today, but till tomorrow, because just yesterday I got yet another novel, Spinoza novel, in the mail for me to, to comment on. Spinoza, both in his person and in his ideas, has attracted a very surprising amount of literary mm -hmm. attention. I think his life has probably been more dramatized in novels and plays, and this again right up until our own day, than any other philosopher, even though he led for the most part a fairly uneventful life. His own rationalist contemporaries, Descartes and Leibniz, had far more dramatic lives, filled with intrigues and adventures, illegitimate children here and there, 
The most dramatic thing Spinoza managed to do was to get himself excommunicated, uh, put into cherem, by his Jewish community of Amsterdam at the age of 23. And I remember vividly turning 24 and thinking to myself, what have I accomplished with my life? By my age, Spinoza had already managed to get himself excommunicated. <laughs> but it's not just the person of Spinoza. Well, I did become free thought heroine, but it took a while. Uh, it's not just the person of Spinoza, but his ideas that have exerted a surprising pull on literary artists. A quite remarkable number of poets and novelists, and not minor ones at that, have reacted to his ideas uh, with these ideas, with these reactions shaping, sometimes adversarially, but often enthusiastically and even rapturously, some of their most significant works. Even more interestingly to me, sometimes the profound artistic inspiration came from profoundly misunderstanding his work, producing very great art in the process of the misunderstanding. I find this fascinating. I can't think of another philosopher to whom something comparable happened. Um, and I should mention that I'm very grateful to uh, Professor Michael Della Roca, the member of the uh, philosophy department here at Yale, who asked me uh, to contribute a chapter to a book that he is editing um, on Spinoza for Oxford and gave me this assignment to look at the, liter the influence on literary writers of Spinoza. It wasn't a subject I had looked into before, and discovering obsessions with Spinoza simmering in the heart of some of my favorite novels and poems was, was truly revelatory for me. But first, to highlight how surprising it is that novelists and poets and playwrights would be attracted to Spinoza and his writings, just a very brief sense of Spinoza's own literary style. This is the beginning of the ethics. Um, probably most of you are familiar with it, but you know, there it is, starting with the definitions the axioms, the propositions, the, the, the proofs. By, by Proposition 11, he's already proved that God exists. Um, it's, um, one wouldn't imagine that it's his literary style, Ali Euclid, that has ravished so many literary artists. Nor can it be the profound things that Spinoza had to say about beauty and the arts and the aesthetic experience. Spinoza says nothing profound about beauty and the arts and the aesthetic experience. He didn't even take the arts seriously enough to agonize over their compatibility with reason, unlike Plato, who of course banishes the poets from his utopia and strictly <laughs> regulates the kind of music can be, that can be heard partly because of the destabilizing psychic power that Plato felt these arts unleashed within us. The inordinate amount of attention that Plato pays to the arts always reminds me of that sadly prophetic quip of the poet Osip Mandelstam, only in Russia is poetry respected. It gets people killed. Well, Mandelstam, of course, died in one of Stalin's... Uh, prison camps. 
In contrast, the brief passage in which the arts are mentioned in the ethics only serves to underscore the impression that Spinoza did not feel the power of aesthetic experience to be such as to warrant rationalist concern, unlike, I might add, uh, the, the erotic response to which he does pay attention, producing a strict deductive proof that sexual love will always end badly. My students always have a lot of trouble with that proof. Music and the theater are mentioned in a list of innocuous amusements that only, quote, grim and gloomy superstition, that is, religion, would forbid. Quote, this is from the ethics, therefore to make use of what comes in our way and to enjoy it as much as possible, not to the point of satiety, for that would not be enjoyment, is the part of the wise man. I say it is the part of, wi of the wise man to refresh and recreate himself with moderate and pleasant food and drink and also with perfumes and the soft be beauty of growing plants, with dress, with music, with many sports, with theaters and the like, such as every man may make use of without injury to his neighbor." End quote. Theater, music, perfumes, plants, Shakespeare's King Lear, like Mozart's Requiem, are put on the same list with Chanel No. 5 and Philodendra. Spinoza's views on pure reason, his views on how the emotions ought to be correlated with the activities of reason, really leave no room for the aesthetic response to be taken terribly seriously, to play any substantive role in intellectual or moral progress. I'll go into this point a little bit uh, more towards the end, the denial of any seriousness uh, to the arts. Nevertheless, despite the scant use which Spinoza had for the arts, artists have made much use of him. The significant writers to whom Spinoza has significantly mattered range across genres and sensibilities, and their reasons for considering Spinoza artistically relevant vary as widely as their methods for making him so. So here's a partial list in chronological order. There is Lessing, Moses Mendelssohn, Goethe, Hildeling, William Wordsworth, Coleridge, the poet known as Novalis, George Eliot, Herman Melville, Heinrich Heine, Matthew Arnold, uh, Borges, Isaac Basheva Singer, Bernard Malamud, and Zbigniew Herbert. Oops. This list consists only of writers who have reacted to Spinoza's ideas. I haven't even included the very many others, both playwrights and novelists, who have taken the person of Spinoza as their subject. This last aspect of literary Spinoza is particularly remarkable, the attraction of the person of Spinoza, especially considering that he is, in a very strong sense, philosophy's most forceful advocate of the most impersonal point of view. We save ourselves, according to Spinoza, by becoming less identified with the self that we just happen to be. To the extent that we're truly rational, Spinoza argued, the contingencies of our own personal identities shrivel into insignificance. 
To the extent that we're rational, our minds are constituted by the logical connections that constitute reality so that to the extent that we're rational, we all of us come to share essentially the very same identity. Still an extraordinarily radical view. So it's one of the ironies of Spinoza's literary life that the very contingencies of Spinoza's particular personal identity have proved to be irresistible to a great many novelists and playwrights. And I confess that I myself paid some attention to Spinoza's personal history in my book, Betraying Spinoza, which is one of the many reasons that I titled it Betraying Spinoza. In fact, even since I wrote the article on which this talk is based, uh, yet another novel was published, Irv Yalom's um, The Spinoza Problem, published in 2012, that makes fiction out of Spinoza's life. Uh, Last spring, I was invited for the third time to be part of a discussion following yet another production of David Ives' play, The New Jerusalem, which reenacts the young philosopher's troubles with the Jewish, his Jewish community of Amsterdam, troubles that, of course, culminated in the 23-year-old's philosophers being put into harem. Um, and here are some scenes from that play. This is from the um, cast, the New York cast at uh, the classical, classic repertory theater. And that is the young man who's playing Spinoza is Jeremy Strong, who was a graduate of Yale College, an English major. Uh, here's another scene from it. Um, this DC production um, that I participated in last spring, a different production, was mounted at the Jewish Community Center of DC. And it was very, very interesting since they made a whole conference out of it with speeches from various scholars and community leaders advocating both for and against Spinoza's excommunication being lifted. And then they had the audience, which by the way, which is huge, vote on whether or not to revoke Spinoza's harem. So what do you think the outcome was? The audience at the JCC of Washington, D.C. decided to cancel the 17th century's greatest iconoclast harem. And after the vote, this is the part I really got a kick out of, three prominent uh, area rabbis, one Orthodox, one Conservative, and one Reformed, read a formal statement reinstating Spinoza into the Jewish community. Quite a meaningless exercise, of course, since the terms of the harem had no application beyond the Jewish community of Amsterdam, but I thought it was a very nice gesture. This artistic usurpation of the person of Spinoza almost always focuses on his harem, as David Ives' play does, and almost always adds a romantic subplot involving the daughter of his Latin tutor, Franciscus van den Enden, as I say, you, you know, you kind of, it was an uneventful life. You kind of have to make stuff up. Uh, the writers who have made Spinoza the central character of novels runs the gamut from the 19th century German-Jewish Bertold Auerbach, Bertold was also born Baruch, um, an advocate of the Haskalah, which is the Jewish Enlightenment, started in Germany in the 19th century, um, whose novel, Spinoza, whose novel, which is called Spinoza, is the first work of historical Jewish fiction, to the Hungarian fascist Erwin Kolbenheyer, who published uh, his book, Amor Dei, Ein Spinoza Roman, which is translated into English as God Intoxicated Man. I actually have it with me because I find it such a 
curiosity. Uh, two decades, he published this novel, two decades before becoming a Nazi propagandist. I mean, go figure. Even Bertrand Russell, in his History of Western Philosophy, slips into an uncharacteristically personal mode when he describes Spinoza as the most lovable of Western philosophers. The ascription of such an adjective as lovable is strikingly out of sync, not only with Russell's general tone, but with the general tone of the history of Western philosophy. Quote, Intellectually, some have surpassed him, Russell continues, but ethically, he is supreme. As a natural consequence, he was considered during his lifetime and for a century after his death, a man of appalling wickedness, end quote. The drama compressed into Russell's irony is itself a stimulus to the imagination. The makings of a good story already seem to be in place. The philosopher is martyr to the dark forces of religion and other forms of irrationality. And this is basically why his person, as opposed to his ideas, his personal history, have proved so irresistible. And why it is that at times when implicit tensions between reason and religion become more explicit, for example, our time, we see more of Spinoza appearing as a character on the stage and on the page. Okay, so I'm now going to put aside this fascination of writers with Spinoza's person and for the balance of the talk speak about the influence of his ideas on writers. I, I can't begin to do justice in this short time to the variety of the writers fixated on Spinoza and the varieties of his interpretations and misinterpretations the misinterpretations, as I mentioned, often artistically fecund, which raises an interesting question, just the sort of interesting question that gave Plato yet another reason for chasing the artists out of his utopia. Artists often go after philosophy in very different ways than philosophers themselves do, with evaluations of philosophical truth often artistically beside the point. Does this matter if great art is produced in the process? I agonize over this question in my two roles as philosopher and novelist. Spinoza's influence on at least some writers forces this question. It is in many cases Spinoza misunderstood that produced works of artistic genius. It isn't the case, and I wouldn't want to suggest it, that all the writers who fixated on Spinoza misunderstood him. Nor is it the case that all the writers who fixated on him were favorably disposed toward him. Some writers declared themselves devotees of his thought and were strengthened in their art by their interpretations, faithful or not. Goethe, for example, whose first novel, Die Leiden des Jungen Werthes, The Sorrows of Young Werther, a work whose extreme popularity had young men not only dressing like young Werther, but also romantically committing suicide with rather alarming rates, wrote in later life that for a period of his youth, and at the time when he wrote Werther, he never left the house without a copy of the ethics tucked into his back pocket. And he referred to Spinoza as our common saint, other literary artists were deeply bothered by some aspect of Spinoza's system, his determinism, for example, very 
strong determinism, or his insistence on the supremacy of reason over the passions, his proof that romantic love, far from being redemptive as it appears in so many literary works, is psychologically and morally and even spiritually pernicious. And they made art out of their resistance to Spinoza. If you've never read, for example, I.B. Singer's great short story, The Spinoza of Market Street, I highly recommend it to you. Okay, so again, a little warning here. What I'm about to do now in the order of the talk is a little odd. I'm going to talk briefly about two writers, George Eliot and Herman Melville. And I'm going to be giving Spinozistic readings of their work without first justifying my assumption that that's the right reading, that their ponderings on Spinoza lie at the heart of their respective novels, Middlemarch and Moby Dick. And only later will I go on to explain why I think this is true and how it came to be that these two most philosophical of the 19th century English writing novelists were obsessed with Spinoza. Uh, and I have to say, this was for me one of the great experiences in pursuing this to topic was to find that my two favorite novels of all time, Middlemarch and Moby Dick, are filled with Spinoza. <laughs> um, also, Melville and Eliot nicely contrast with one another since one of them was terrifically inspired by Spinoza and the other was terrifically bothered by Spinoza. George Eliot falls into the first category, a Spinoza enthusiast for the most part. She decided to write fiction seven months after completing the translation of the ethics into English, which would have been the first translation of the ethics into English, but because of a quarrel between her publisher and her lifelong partner, uh, George Henry Lewis, uh, the, her translation wasn't published until 1978. Unlike other literary figures who declared themselves ardent Spinozists without bothering too much with the details of his system, Eliot possessed the intimate knowledge of the translator. And given the sort of fiction that she went on to produce, it's not difficult to imagine that her decision to write fiction was at least partly a reaction to Spinoza. Although she refers to Spinoza by name only once in her fiction, and that's in her last novel, Daniel Deronda, and there it's to chide him for not loving the Jews enough the way she had by that time that she um, wrote Daniel Deronda. Uh, she, uh, there are Spinozistic elements that are run throughout her fiction not least of all the purpose that she gives to her art. Eliot staunchly defines her art in ethical terms. Just as Spinoza tries to transform us on the cognitive, emotional, and moral level through strict deductive proofs, so Eliot seeks to do the same through her fiction. For Eliot, as for Spinoza, the cognitive and emotional and moral are not separate self-contained domains. Rather, the cognitive is emotional and is moral. However, this, these identifications hide ambiguities, and the decision Eliot made to write 
fiction in order to do the transformative ethical work certainly points to a divergence between her own views and those of the philosopher she had translated. For one thing, Eliot believes that sympathy and pity are great moral forces and themselves yield moral knowledge and that art can work this up in us, whereas Spinoza doesn't. Spinoza classifies such emotions as sympathy, pity, and compassion among the passive emotions that come about through the haphazard attachment of pain and pleasure with objects. Quote, pity in a man, this is from uh, part four of the ethics, pity in a man who lives under the guidance of reason is in itself bad and useless. Uh, going on in the following scolium to argue that, quote, he who rightly realizes that all things follows from the necessity of the divine nature and come to pass in accordance with the eternal laws and rules of nature will not find anything worthy of hatred, derision, or contempt, nor will he bestow pity on anything, but to the utmost extent of human virtue he will endeavor to do well as a saying is and to rejoice. We may add, it goes on, that he who is easily touched with compassion and is moved by another's sorrow or tears, often does something which he afterwards regrets. It's got a point there. Partly because we can never be sure that an action caused by emotion is good, partly because we are easily deceived by false tears. That's Spinoza. Eliot certainly diverges from Spinoza when it comes to the ethical uses of pity, sympathy, and compassion. And yet a great deal of Spinoza, Spinozism persists. Eliot's fictional world operates under a strict determinism. But this determinism, with her as with Spinoza, allows for freedom and moral growth. Character for Eliot is described exclusively in moral terms. And her interest is in plotting out how characterological tendencies and social factors play out quote, under the varying experiments of time, unquote, which she writes in her prologue to Middlemarch. The ethics, Spinoza's ethics, is ultimately addressed to the question, what can be done with human nature? Human nature is a given. How, how do we proceed? How can we become moral, uh, given the determinism of human nature? So is Eliot's fiction. All of her characters are driven by their endeavor to persist in their own being and to flourish. As Spinoza tells us, we all must be. This endeavor to persist in our own being, to increase our power, to persist and to flourish is what constitutes our own individuality, our own personal identity. Spinoza calls it conitas. In Eliot's fiction, all are driven by their conitas, pursuing their notions of pleasure, and all, even her most admirable characters, have their fatally inadequate ideas and conitas-induced blindnesses. And yet some characters allow enough of the world to seep into their consciousness so as to be edified by it, while others are impervious to reality's corrections. This susceptibility to the chastisements rendered by reality is what makes the great moral difference for Eliot and for Spinoza, explaining why some make moral progress while others, the incorrigibly vain 
or self-righteous or frightened, whom both Eliot and Spinoza rather mercilessly dissect, are stymied. Knowledge redeems us for both Eliot and Spinoza, but knowledge to be truly knowledge must be of the transformative kind, prompted by a love of the truth that will take in the truth even when it doesn't gratify our sense of ourselves and our own cosmic importance in our own delusional eyes. That's the dark side of Conitas, which has to be corrected. Knowledge, for Eliot, as with Spinoza, must work the whole self, or it isn't knowledge at all. It's just another way for the ego to blot out the world. Quote, Will not a tiny spark very close to our vision blot out the glory of the world and leave only a margin by which we see the blot? I know no speck so troublesome as self. That's, that's Eliot, but it's, it's Spinoza. But whereas Eliot was by and large sympathetic to Spinoza's determinism and radical views on the metaphysics of the self, Herman Melville, Born in the same year as Eliot, 1819, and arguably the most philosophically engaged of the great 19th century American novelists, chafed against these aspects of Spinoza's system. Melville also mentions Spinoza by name only once in Moby Dick, rather deliciously. This right whale I take to have been a Stoic. The sperm whale, a Platonian, who might have taken up Spinoza in later years. But his preoccupation with the fate of human freedom, of the very reality of the individual and his agency in the face of Spinoza's logic helped, I think, to fuel his masterpiece. Though the diverse literary strategies that Melville's Moby Dick employs should warn us against making too reductive an interpretation, it's not too far-fetched to see in the symbol-saturated battle between Ahab and Moby Dick, that monster of metaphysical consequentiality, reflections of Melville's own struggle with Spinoza. Ahab's doomed battle with the Leviathan embodies something of Melville's own battle with a worldview that swamps personality with infinity. Ahab, as one literary scholar I found put it, Richard Gravel in uh, Romantic Dialogues, is, quote, fiction's most redoubtable anti-Spinozist. I'm so happy to find that. And Ahab's maniacal hatred of the whale, his his rational unappeasability that dooms himself and his crew, contains something of our own rebellion against the maddening habit of reality to be what it is despite us. How dare it override our wills? Its very objectivity is an affront to our dignity. Quote, talk not to me of blasphemy, man, Ahab berates Starbuck. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. This is lunacy, of course, and it's the very lunacy that animates Melville's masterpiece. Ahab is intent on proving his autonomy over nature, including over his very own nature. And the irony, of course, is that the defiance against determinism that dooms him is itself determined. It's the very essence of his character not to accept the essence of his character, 
which has got a sort of charming Godelian air of paradox to it. He's driven by his maddened desire not to be driven, as he himself seems sometimes self-maddeningly to glimpse. On the second day of the chase, after Starbuck almost succeeds in getting Ahab uh, to relent, Ahab pulls back short, declaring, declaring, Ahab is ever Ahab, man. This whole act's immutably decreed. Twas rehearsed by thee and me a billion years before this ocean rolled. Fool, I am the fate's lieutenant. I act under orders. Look thou, underling, that thou obeyest mine. Is Ahab's doom the outcome of his unreason, defiance, of the cold, dispassionate necessity that arises from out of the pages of the ethics? Does Melville then side with Spinoza in the end, acknowledging that the structure of reality demands a rethinking of the reality of the self, however much it may be experienced as an assault to do so? It's, I think, impossible to say, and it hardly matters Art to be great art must preserve its ambiguities. Artists don't write by way of QEDs. What does seem quite clear is that the, one of the great masterpieces of philosophical literature could not have been written had reflections on Spinoza not entered deep into the literary bloodstream. For Melville and Eliot, it's not the person of Spinoza that engages them, it's his ideas, and most centrally, his ideas on determinism and what this entails for agency and the reality of self in the face of Spinoza's monumental system. But how did this happen? How did the 19th century's most philosophically engaged English-language novelists, George Eliot and Herman Melville, come to be so fixated on Baruch Spinoza? Why was he so much on their minds, churning up artistic responses within them? How did his severely logical system come to be to draw so much attention from novelists? This is an amazing story. It was all news to me, um, how he entered the literary consciousness, and one which is bound up with the story of the European Enlightenment, as well it should be, given the nature of Spinoza's thoughts and the role that he played in seeding the Enlightenment, as has been so magisterially demonstrated in the works of the historian Jonathan Israel. And if you're wondering whose beautiful, haunting eyes those are, well, there they are. Those are the eyes of Spinoza. Um, The pivotal year in which Spinoza became a literary figure was 1785, and the pivotal country was Germany, and the pitiful, pivotal, I almost said pitif- pitiful, no, pivotal figure was one Friedrich Heinrich Jacobi, who was a convert to Christianity from Judaism, and whose most lasting contribution to philosophy was his coinage of the term uh, nihilism, nihilismus. Uh, nihilism was... Jacobi argued in his brief of Uwe de Lera von Spinoza, Letters on the Doctrine of Spinoza, precisely where consistent philosophy inexorably led. And consistent philosophy, he further argued, means Spinoza, which is regrettable. Consistent philosophy is Spinozist, hence pantheist, fatalist, and atheist. Far from being philosophy's unfortunate erratum, Spinoza was its damnable damnable demonstratum. Jacobi's attack was on the Afklärung, on the, on the Enlightenment, 
with its presumption that we are made better, not just better off, but morally better by reason's progress. Such an assertion is, one could argue, Jacobi did, implicit in the moral philosophy of Jacobi's contemporary, Immanuel Kant. There's a logic underlying moral reasoning summed up in the categorical imperative, and we act morally only insofar as our acts are motivated by our grasp of moral logic. Jacobi drew Kant into his attack as well, and Kant had to defend himself against the charge of being a closet Spinozist. Jacobi's charge was that the aim of the Enlightenment was to authorize reason to usurp what properly belongs to the domain of religion, claiming for itself even the moral life of man and woman. In mounting his argument, he put Spinoza front and center, which was a politically savvy move since Spinoza had long been regarded as beyond the pale. The notoriety of Spinoza had not diminished with his death. Once he was excommunicated by his Jewish community, it fell on greater Christian Europe to condemn him, and they did, even Leibniz. His form of atheism was branded as more execrable than any other. His influence often merged with Satan's. Well-rehearsed enunciations of Spinoza became a prerequisite for entrance into the academic and ecclesiastical ranks. You had to have your, your anti-Spinoza arguments all lined up to pass your orals. Spinoza died in 1677. By 1710, there was a very large catalogus scriptorium anti-Spinoza sonorum in Leipzig. Obviously, Spinoza had been in the intellectual consciousness of continental Europe since the moment that it became an open secret that he was the author of the anonymously published Tractatus Theologico-Politicus. But something new happened with Jacobi's attack and with the attention that this attracted from not just philosophers and ecclesiastics, but the great literary lights of Germany identifying the whole project of the Enlightenment with Satan's philosophical emissary was pretty clever, but it somewhat backfired. If to, it's almost as if people, or some people were thinking that if to be on the side of the Enlightenment, you had to be a Spinozist, then okay, I'll become a Spinozist. Uh, that was the move that many of the leading uh, lights of, of Germany made. The intellectual fireball that Jacobi ignited was dubbed the Pantheismusstreit, the pantheism controversy, or alternatively, the Spinoza Kreit, the Spinoza War. Goethe spoke of it as an explosion, and Hegel wrote of a thunderbolt out of the blue. This controversy reconfigured the intellectual and literary landscape of Germany and through an odd turn of events succeeded in transforming the ultra-rationalist Spinoza into a figure that a romantic poet could love. The fracas was precipitated by Jacobi's trying to draw Moses Mendelssohn, who was the founder of the Haskalah in Germany and a respected figure in greater German culture, also the grandfather, of course, of Felix Mendelssohn, into an argument by revealing to him the scandalous secret that their mutual friend, Lessing, who had just recently died, was a closet Spinozist. 
a secret spinosis. According to Jacobi, Lessing had confided shortly before his death that he had come to the conclusion that, quote, there is no other philosophy than the philosophy of Spinoza, unquote. It was Mendelssohn who had first introduced Lessing to Spinoza in the first place, and Lessing's play, Nathan the Wise, had drawn heavily on Spinoza's Tractatus Theologico-Politicus. So perhaps Lessing's Spinozist sympathies didn't come to Mendelssohn as the shattering news that Jacobi implied it must be. In any case, in whatever Jacobi's real agenda, the publication of his account of the Mendelssohn-Lessing-Spinoza connection created a maelstrom that became a referendum on the Enlightenment. Uh, Jacobi espouses the kind of the heart has its reasons of which reason is ignorant line that was sympathetic of a storm and, storm and drown crowd. And yet, a delicious twist in the plot, one which... Spinoza's logic I don't think could ever have inferred, one after another of the leading lights of that movement leapt in to declare themselves Spinozas, get to claim that the three greatest influences on him had been Linnaeus, Shakespeare, and Spinoza. In his autobiography, Aus meinem Leben, Dichtung und Wahrheit, the first volume of which was published in 1811, he claims that Spinoza exerted an extraordinary power over him in his early adulthood, the period during which he wrote The Sorrows of Young Werther. Quote, what, what specially attached me to him was the boundless disinterestedness which shone forth from every sentence. That marvelous saying, whoso truly loves God must not desire God to love him in return, with all the premises on which it rests and the consequences that flow from it, permeated my whole thinking. If, you, if you've read anything about Goethe's early years, you might be a little skeptical about this. But maybe without Spinoza's ethics tucked into his back pocket, he would have been even more tumultuous. In any case, Goethe threw the monumental weight of his stature on the scales for Spinoza. And one after another um, of the great lights of the Sturm und Drang crowd lined up to declare for Spinoza. Holderling, for example, wrote in a letter to his mother, quote, one must arrive at his ideas if one wants to explain everything. And the poet Novalis memorably describes Spinoza as the God-intoxicated man, von Gott getrunken. One can read the whole subtle transformation of Spinoza right in that phrase, the Apollonian morphine into the Dionysian. Jacobi's attack on Mendelssohn by way of Lessing and Spinoza did more to burnish Spinoza's reputation than anything that had preceded it. Spinoza, in being embraced in Goethe's words as our common saint, was significantly altered in the embrace. And this somewhat new, and I, I don't want to say improved, but, but different and certainly more accessible, Spinoza traveled beyond Germany's borders. Coleridge was deeply interested in German philosophy and closely followed the pantheismus strite. In this way, Spinozism, especially as it became transformed by the romantic imagination, began to permeate the English literary scene, influencing not only Coleridge, but also poets um, such as Wordsworth and such intellectual leaders as uh, George Henry Lewis. In fact, I just last week was reading an interview with Borges, Another writer deeply fixated on Spinoza, can't go into how he uses him, and I encountered this tale. 
And I'll give it to you in Borges's words. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not. You know, he says to his interviewer, let me tell you a story about Coleridge. It seems that he and Wordsworth were suspected of being sympathizers with the French Revolution and were seen a bit as potential traitors. Then someone followed them and reported that they were constantly talking about a spy, and that was Spy Noza. There was a search for this Spy Noza. Who could Spy Noza be? Then they stopped bothering Wordsworth and Coleridge, and they went after the person who was evidently the head of things. How, it's too good a story, I don't believe it's true. How could romanticism find an ally in a writer who entitled a section of his book dealing with the passions of human bondage? The terms of the strite, which made pantheism interchangeable with Spinozism, partly explains how Spinoza's very tricky concept of deus sive natura was transformed into an apotheosis of the beautiful nature of sunsets and mountain views and his description of the third level of intuition, uh, a third level of knowledge, which he calls intuition, was understood as beatific communion with natural beauty. Deus sive natura, concept concept which frankly has more in common with a string, theory's no, string theorist's notion of a final theory of everything than the nature of, in Wordsworth's words, the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky, gets translated into a romanticized version of pantheism, which one can hear in such poetic masterpieces as Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey and the early Coleridge's The Aeolian Harp. And yet some of the romantics, most particularly Coleridge, eventually came to find certain implications of Spinozism deeply troubling. Spinoza's versions of salvation demand, as I've said, a radical overhaul of one's personal sense of self. The contingencies that seem to constitute one's own inviolable individuality fall away as one's intellect comes more and more to reflect the necessary connections that constitute reality also known as the infinite intellect of God. Even one's overriding love of oneself yields to the higher love, amor dei intellectualis, the intellectual love of God, <clears throat> the apprehension through pure reason of the vast and necessary implicate order that contains all explanations and the blissful joy attendant on that apprehension, which is what uh, amor dei intellectualis is. The ontological dimming of the self can be rattling to everybody, but especially, I think, to the romantic soul, with its tendency to glory in its own indomitable selfhood. Coleridge beautifully expresses this rattling, quote, the idea of the supreme being appeared to me as necessarily implied in all particular modes of being as the idea of infinite space and all the geometrical figures by which space is limited. For a very long time indeed, I could not reconcile personality with infinity, and my head was with Spinoza, though my whole heart remained with the individual man." Unquote. On the other side of the Atlantic, Melville closely studying Coleridge's Biographia Literari the poet's intellectual biography, found himself beset with many of the same discomforts in succumbing to Spinoza's logic. 
And what an idea it was to stage this drama of metaphysics as the irrational irreconcilability of Ahab for that white whale of the ghostly white hue. But many others, especially those who concentrated on the role of Spinoza in the tension between religion and reason, were more disposed to loving Spinoza, even if to love him one had to dismiss aspects of the system that didn't appeal to them, even if those aspects were essential to Spinoza's thought. Heinrich Heine, for example, declared his affinity with Spinoza, whom he, whom he interprets in the light of romantic pantheism. And he claims that Spinozistic pantheism has overtaken Germany. It is now the new religion of Germany. Heine may, of course, be overstating the case. He had a tendency to do so. He certainly expressed in his own personal outlook, which he identified with Spinoza, though it is Spinoza as a romantic would have him, Spinoza as he had been reinterpreted during the pantheismus strike. Heine is quite disapproving of Spinoza's mathematical bent. He says, we also find in Spinoza, as in Descartes, a mode of demonstration borrowed from mathematics. This is a grievous fault. I mean, to say this is a fault of Spinoza is just to go to the heart of Spinoza. He continues, but if we penetrate past the harsh exterior, then we become conscious of a feeling such as pervades us at the sight of great nature in her most lifelike state of repose. We behold a forest of heaven-reaching thoughts whose blossoming topmost boughs are tossing like waves of the sea whilst their immovable stems are rooted in the eternal earth. There is a peculiar, indescribable fragrance about the writings of Spinoza. We seem to breathe in them the air of the future. Heine, in turn, called Goethe the Spinoza of poetry, proclaiming that the Spinozistic element is spread throughout his poetry, and writes, the doctrine of Spinoza has escaped from its chrysalid mathematical form and flutters about us in the lyric of Goethe. The poet, Matthew Arnold, who also revered Spinoza, pondered the source of Spinoza's power over such writers as Lessing, Goethe, and Heine, who was his older contemporary. And I think he really put his finger on why the system of this particular philosopher, despite its systematic rationalism, could have so wondrously moved the romantic soul, even beyond Spinoza's appeal as the iconic free thinker in the religion-reason debate. Here is Arnold speaking of Heine's reaction to Spinoza. Heine, the man, in spite of his faults, of truest genius that Germany has produced since Goethe, a man with faults, as I have said, immense faults, the greatest of them being that he could reverence so little, reverenced Spinoza. It is not, Arnold writes, the metaphysical formulas that touch the literary imagination. Propositions about substance, he says, and you can almost feel the shudder, drift past like so much idle wind. Rather, for these great spirits of artistic romanticism to have been moved, quote, there are needed the wings of a genuine sacred transport, of an immortal longing. These wings Spinoza had, and because he had them, his own language about himself and his aspirations and his course are true. His foot is in the vera vita, his eyes on the beatific vision, unquote. 
All right, wind up. The exercise of reason for Spinoza is not an emotionally sterile experience, but it is one with the extremely pleasurable, expansive emotions that reside in the sense of our own power increasing, our minds reaching beyond themselves to approach closer to the vast spread of existence, determined by the inexorable logic that originates in the principle of sufficient reason, the banishment from the realm of logical possibility of any facts that come without any explanations. The ethics culminates in a vision of transcendent experience, a kind of rationalist bliss, attendant on the upper reaches of understanding, as one's own finite mind, incorrigibly as incomplete as one's own finite existence must be, strains to glimpse each finite mood, including the cluster of finite modes that one is oneself, in relation to the densely packed infinite spread of existence. This experience lifts a person right out of herself, so much so that she thinks of death least of all things, he says, and merges her very identity with a sense of the infinite intricate web of necessary connections that is existence. The solace for her finitude comes from knowing that finite as she is, fatally finite, she merited having been entailed by the infinite implicate order that is Deus Sive Natura. So it is, according to Spinoza, that the truth-sinking activity of the mind achieves its own salvation. And for as long as you can sustain that thought, it's a very heady experience indeed. Many have claimed similar transcendence for the aesthetic experience that great art yields. Aesthetic experience, too, is the result of the mind's cultivation and discipline activity, the exhilarating sense of being lifted straight out of yourself through the intense activity of mind, that heightened state which is every bit as cognitive as it is emotional and blissfully so at that. Aesthetic experience can deliver that as well. Aesthetic experience, one might say, is the alogistic analog to Spinoza's Amor Dei Intellectualis. But in being alogistic, it's not, of course, Spinoza at all. For Spinoza, the progress of the understanding must proceed by way of the rigors of logic, or not at all. For the eyes of the mind, whereby it sees things and understands, are none other than proofs. It's, I think, a very poetic line on Spinoza's part, but it also explains why he never considered poetry, or any other art for that matter, a means for doing any serious work. All the more ironic, then, that artists on the order, some of those I've spoken about today and many, many more, have made art out of their interactions with Spinoza's system, despite the reiterated finality of his quad s demonstratum. Thank you. This lecture was delivered on October 2, 2012 at the Whitney Humanities Center. The Frankie Visiting Scholars and Artists Program, a special residential fellowship at Yale, is made possible through the generosity of Richard and Barbara Frankie. 
the creation of this residential fellowship is intended to ensure ongoing interdisciplinary exchange and creative debate at the Whitney in particular and at Yale in general.